Hello. If you are hearing this, that means you're intrigued enough to be a free subscriber to the new Substack newsletter, A Million Little Thoughts. But you haven't yet decided whether you'd like to fork over a couple of bucks a month for the full paid subscription. That's okay. I completely understand. There will always be plenty of content for free subscribers, including the newsletter, and of course the full seasons, or books, as I like to call them, of the podcast A Million Little Gods. But if you enjoy this preview, and you do have some expendable cash, consider investing so that you can access this full conversation, and much more in the future. For now, here's the preview. Is this thing on? Hi. We haven't heard from each other in a long while. Some things have happened since we talked. Ben took on a new role in communications with a multi-billion dollar company. So that was something. And his new company wants to disrupt their chosen market. So they decided to practice by disrupting our podcast. Ben, as you can guess, will only be able to join us sporadically from now on. That's why, as you already know, I've migrated the podcast over to Substack and started a newsletter called A Million Little Thoughts as a supplement. In fact, if you're hearing this, that means you've already decided to become a paid listener, knowing that you can get extras like this regularly. So, good on ya. You have chosen wisely. Since I released the razor blade in the apple part two last Thursday, and you're in the middle of a discussion of the rhetorical minefield that is the scientific consensus on race, I thought I'd share this interview that Ben and I conducted last year with two scholars cited in the upcoming finale of the essay. Our guests are Nathaniel Comfort and Aya Nuruddin. Nathaniel Comfort is associate professor in the Institute of History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins, He specializes in the history of genetics and the relationship between modern genomics and the 19th century eugenics movement in the U.S. And I would say that he's a really eloquent science communicator to the general public. Meanwhile, Nathaniel's erstwhile protege, Aya Nuruddin, was just finishing her Ph.D. at Johns Hopkins when we spoke to her. She's now a postdoc fellow at Princeton. In her work, she's focused on the lived experience of black Americans over the past hundred years and... As per her Princeton bio, she's looked at how they've navigated questions of racial science, eugenics, and hereditarianism in relation to struggles for racial justice. And she's also quite a passionate and convincing thinker on how those older troubles cast long shadows of entrenched racial disparities over medicine and policy to this day. I think this interview adds depth and breadth and whole other dimensions that you wouldn't get from only reading the essay. So... Without further ado, here are Aya Nuruddin and Nathaniel Comfort. Aya, since you are the younger scholar here, but, you know, by no means <laughs> diminished by age, I will start with you. Oh, you want me to start? Yeah, tell us about yourself. Okay, so I'm finishing up, after much ado, finishing up my PhD at Hopkins in history of medicine. Nathaniel is the boss of me. And I'm working on the ways in which African-Americans sort of engage eugenics and racial science in the late 19th century all the way through to the 1970s. Yeah. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about was an essay you wrote in 2018. It's called Psychiatric Jim Crow Desegregation at the Crownsville State Hospital, 1948 to 1970. And in it, you trace 
three different phases of desegregation that were undergone at this state hospital just outside of Annapolis. I was moved by that story because of its tragic quality. Mm. It could have turned in better directions at any point, but always seemed to veer because of larger systemic currents back into tragedy. And that makes me <laughs> sad. So, uh, okay, tell me the story So in, in it, small it is, detail. In small detail. I won't get into the into all of the gory details because that would just eat up the whole the whole time we have. But basically it opens in 1911 as the Maryland Hospital for the Negro Insane because the state decides that there's too many black insane people and nowhere to put them effectively because of the way segregation operated in the state. There weren't really a lot of options for black psychiatric patients. Um, and that was pretty true for large swaths of the country. There was only a handful of places that actually had state psychiatric hospitals that serve black patients. So Crownsville is sort of pioneering in that sense. But basically uh, the the sort of tragedy starts right from the beginning. They, um, in order to save money on the cost of building the hospital, they actually use patient labor to build the hospital from the ground up. And then later describe this practice as industrial therapy. So patients are doing, you know, all kinds of labor, clearing land, they're doing agricultural labor, and then it's later described as, as therapeutic. Then because it's the only hospital for black patients in the whole state, every black psychiatric patient ends up pretty much at Crownsville. It quickly becomes extremely overcrowded and it's deeply understaffed because the staff is also segregated. So it's an all the hospital is all black patients, but for, for the first 30, 40 years of its existence, all of the staff that work there, all the clinical staff and otherwise are all white. And there's sort of a stigma attached to working at a segregated hospital. So there's not a lot of black, a lot of white practitioners that really want to be there. The staff ends up being primarily like Jewish refugees fleeing World War II, which was a real, is a really interesting part of the story. There's a gradual desegregation of the staff in the 1940s. The patients are desegregated in the 1960s because they're in anticipation of basically what's an, a test case from the NAACP. And so what they develop instead in 1960 as a, as a rezoning system. So it's more based on geographic location rather than um, sort of racial identity. And this sort of coincides with the beginnings of deinstitutionalization. So as mo money is moving away from hospitals like Crownsville, it's going into the carceral infrastructure of the state. So in the same year that they desegregate patients, they open up what's what is was called the Clifton T. Perkins Hospital for the Criminally Insane, but it's it's effectively prison. And right now that hospital is actually located on a prison campus. It's a maximum security hospital now. And so desegregation and deinstitutionalization basically have these really overlapping effects. While desegregation in a lot of ways was a victory, deinstitutionalization basically dismantled the hospital gradually until it closed in 2004. And now there's a lot of local efforts to sort of preserve the grounds. There's two folks uh, in Crownsville, Paul Lurz and Janice Hayes-Williams, who are doing incredible work to sort of preserve the grounds and particularly preserve the cemetery that has, I think it's uh, roughly 1,500 patients that are still buried there today. And most of the graves don't have names on them because they uh, used to, they didn't start putting names on the graves until the 1950s. And so there's this ongoing tragedy, even now, as the hospital um, is closed, there's still people trying to like respond to this this sort of tragic memory of this hospital. You mentioned at the beginning of this this project, this Crownsville State Hospital, that it was quite it was an unusual or yeah, I don't want to say groundbreaking in that sense, but not it's not a sort of typical undertaking. And I was wondering 
how this project was perceived at the time, both by the people who were carrying it out, who sort of came up with the idea to implement it, and if you, there is any information on how the patients at the hospital felt about this compared to the other alternatives. Like, how was this seen at the time? So the when they first um, open or when they first even start conversations about having a, a sort of all black hospital, it's largely because they're just patients that there is nowhere to put them and they're creating a sort of sort of public nuisance. There's a handful of like private institutions that might take black patients. There's a psych ward of the city hospital, which is now Johns Hopkins Bayview. Um, that would occasionally also have black patients. The Maryland Hospital for the Insane had segregated wards or they would just put patients in tents outside on the grounds. Mm. And so there was just there was just too many patients and not anywhere to put them. So it becomes a, a sort of issue of practicality in the ways that um, people are talking about opening the hospital. And so to sort of, they, then they have to come up with th these ways to justify opening, like why would we use state resources on, you know, black psychiatric patients? But uh, the Maryland Lunacy Commission, as it was called, um, decided that this was sort of a, a sort of public good that these people needed to be put somewhere and will justify the cost by making them do the work. So there's even in these like annual early annual reports of the Maryland Lunacy Commission, like line items where they show how much money they saved by using patient labor to build the hospital. There's okay, so it was never uh, it was never perceived as being some kind of high-minded or reform-oriented undertaking. It was just pure practicality, and in some sense, you're, it just seems to me you're suggesting that it was kind of heartless or not heartless isn't the right word, but it's not benevolent. very sort of sober-minded. Yes. It's not benevolent. It's, it's not, not benevolent. Of, we're yeah. doing this out of the goods of our heart, right? Not even perceived as benevolent by the people doing it. That's a great mm -hmm. way to think about it. Yeah, it's great. sort of, well, we have this problem and here's the only way to fix it. I guess we'll have to do this. It's sort of, at least the sense that I'm getting, because a lot of this is stuff that I'm gleaning from, you know, reports of the Lunacy Commission, right? There's not there's not sure. places, other places where it's it's sort of documented. And it's even harder to get at how patients sort of understood yeah. Um, well, we do find like later in the 40s and um, 30s, 40s and 50s is that sometimes you'll have patients like write letters to the editor into like newspapers like the Baltimore Afro-American complaining about the conditions. Mm. Um, and they'll, you know, sort of write a letter, smuggle it out with a relative who came to visit type of thing where they talk about how you know horrible a place Crownsville is. And, and they actually some of these letters end up getting uh, published um, in the Afro. So that's kind of one of the ways we get a glimpse at what patients think, but it's, it's really, really hard to get sort of narratives from psychiatric patients in general, but it's even harder, um, to get those kinds of narratives from black psychiatric patients. Great. Great. Cause it, my sense is around that time in American history, you do have a lot of programs that are at least in the minds of the people carrying them out couched in this kind of reform minded, now trying to improve the world or in the way that they saw it at the time. But what you're saying is that this wasn't even that. Not that I can, not that I was able to discern from the records that I have. No. Great. But of course it would vary from state to state.
I hope you've been enjoying this short excerpt of the interview with Ayanura Dean and Nathaniel Comfort. If you'd like to listen to the entire thing, become a paid subscriber before September 20th, which is when the full thing will drop. And of course, watch out Thursday, September 8th for the final part of the essay, The Razorblade and the Apple, and have a great Tuesday.